I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to Psalm, I'm sorry, to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50, I want to simply read for you verse 20, which will form the, the pinnacle of our launching pad this morning. Perhaps you know this verse, perhaps you've memorized this verse. I trust by the end of uh, my message today, you'll have it memorized. It's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. It's on the cover of our bulletin. It's the center of the story of Joseph. It says this, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Fifty years ago, last Sunday, five American missionaries were speared to death on the beach of a river in Ecuador. You've probably heard about that. You probably know about it. Jim Elliott, Ed McCauley, Pete Fleming, Nate Saint, and Roger Udarian made efforts to bring the Gospel of Christ to the Udani people, the Aurani people, rather, who were known for their violence and spearing people to death. They killed among themselves. So violent was this tribe of people that the mortality rate of dying by a spear was 60%. Meaning that of all the men who grew up in that culture, in that tribe, you had a 60% chance of dying by being speared to death. And not only did they spear their own, but they speared others who might happen to come upon their borders. And these five missionaries had a heart to reach out to these people. They, they made contact with them by, by flying overhead and, and spinning in a circle like this with a long rope and dropping some gifts in a bucket. And they did that several times, making personal contact, giving gifts to these people. And these people understood that they were gifts because they gave gifts back to them. And being really encouraged by that, they landed a plane on the beach near where their tribe is and camped out for several days, hoping to make contact with this tribe of people. And initially they did. They made some contact with two women and two women and a man and a single man. And kind of things were friendly at that point, and they were really excited to be able to reach out to these people with the gospel of Christ. But on Sunday, January 8, 1955, they were ambushed and speared to death upon the beach that's been known as Palm Beach. Now, I just simply say the evils of this attack are beyond words. Without provocation, these five missionaries were killed in cold blood. They had demonstrated nothing but kindness to the Waurani people, but were paid back with the end of a spear. It was a sad day in the life of these missionaries. Obviously, their life ended. All of these missionaries were in their late 20s or early 30s. All of them left behind wives, and a total of nine children were left behind. Small children. And yet, much good has come from this event. And truly, it illustrates the verse I read for you at the beginning of my message here. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You might easily say this, these Waranis meant evil against these missionaries, but God meant it for good. And I tell you, it is difficult even for me to describe the good that's come about from this event. 
in the circumstances, politically, technologically wise, this event became the central news story across the nation. People were literally glued to the radios to hear if there was any update about the missing missionaries who made contact with this violent tribe of people and were going to try to reach out to them. People were listening. They heard these people were missing and and perhaps they suspected maybe they were killed, but they didn't know and their ears were glued to to the radio. And when the story finally came out that they were speared by the tribesmen, it stunned the nation. In fact, I've been told that the event was so significant that many people to this day, 50 years later, will be able to tell you exactly where they were when they heard the news. Gordy, do you remember where you were? Maybe not. Do you remember where you were when you heard the news that they were killed? It was a huge event in the light of the, God, uh, light of the sister nation. And, and as a result of that, many people across our land heard the stories of these men who gave up all to serve Christ. And many heard the quote of Jim Elliot who said so rightly, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Many people across our nation heard that. And the Gospel as a result of that was shared far and wide and many were converted to Christ by means of their testimony. And from the example of these men, interest in missions abounded. We don't know for sure, but I would guess that countless thousands were motivated to give up their own lives and serve the Lord as these missionaries did across the world. And this is always the case, the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. The event turned out to be very strengthening for the church. God meant it for good. And on top of that, top of the people who have gone out to serve the Lord, many have witnessed the amazing power of forgiveness that comes to the Gospel of Christ. There were several family members who went back to minister to this tribe of people. Elizabeth Elliot's perhaps the most famous. Right, This event has given her a national platform to speak to many about what has taken place. She returned to minister to those who had killed her husband. Her daughter, Valerie Elliott, returned to minister to those who killed her dad. Rachel Saint, Nate Saint's sister, went to minister to those who killed their brother. And Nate Saint, Steve Saint as well, Nate Saint's son, returned to minister to those who had killed his father. And perhaps his story becomes the biggest in light of reconciliation. I mean, he's given opportunities for Steve Saint to be interviewed all across our country to tell the story again and again and again of the reconciliation that he has had with the very people that killed his father. In fact, the testimony is, um, is heart-wrenching. It is, is heart-endearing to, to hear Steve Saint and to see him and to see him walk around with a man who, when he pieced it all together... Speared his father. And his children call this man grandpa, grandfather. He is part of the family. He entrusts his grandchildren to their care. And he has been amazing. Just even, I think, maybe a couple of weeks ago or last week on Family Life Today, he was interviewed and this man was sitting right there. I forget his name. Ivan, you know his name. 
Mingtai or something like that. He's a little native guy. In fact, on your children's notes, I got a, a picture of Steve Saint with his arm around Mingtai. This man killed his father. And yet the reconciliation that's in the gospel of Christ is abundant. And this message has then been able to go across the world. In fact, even on this Friday, a movie is entitled End of the Spear, which tells the story of what took place. Right? It'll go across the nation. Be able to get people perked. Well, how is this? How did that happen? It's only through Christ that it has. And we might well say, these, while Ronnie's meant evil against these missionaries, but God meant it for good to bring about this present result. And the present result has been that Steve Saint particularly has become the figurehead of this. He has been able to speak very candidly with those who killed his father, about those involved in killing his father. And it's interesting that Steve has had an opportunity really to ask these men and these people what exactly happened on that beach 50 years ago. And when he pieced things together, he just saw so many strange anomalies, strange things that just shouldn't have happened, that he said this, As the killers described the recollections of the killings, it occurred to me how incredibly unlikely it was that the Palm Beach killing took place at all. It shouldn't have take place, taken place, is what he said. He said, it is an anomaly that I cannot explain outside of divine intervention. I cannot explain it apart from divine intervention. Do you understand what he's saying? He is saying that it was divine intervention was the precise reason why his father was killed. Right? In other words, the reason that these missionaries were killed on the beach wasn't simply because God pulled His protection away and allowed them to be killed. Rather, it's because God intervened in the situation and caused all of the strange circumstances surrounding the death of his father. And I've heard Steve Saint say personally, and several of you men here have heard him say it well, he said this, he is convinced that God planned the death of his father. God planned it. And that is where his comfort and assurance actually comes from. Because God was sovereign over the circumstance that took place in Ecuador. And I say that the story of the Waurani is the story of Joseph that we are considering this morning. So I want to really launch here from Genesis chapter 50 verse 20. But let's consider it before we launch and look back at the story of Joseph. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. This is the story of Joseph in a nutshell. His brothers had done great evil against him. And we'll expound upon that and we'll see that here in a little bit. But the amazing thing is this, is that the very same evil that was meant to harm Joseph, God meant that evil for the good of His people. The point you need to see here is that Joseph doesn't say, you meant evil against me, but God allowed the evil and God turned it to be used for the good. Like taking a bad situation and putting a good spin on it after the fact. It's not that God merely adjusted the circumstances of their evil actions after the fact to produce a good result in the end. What Genesis 50 verse 20 says is that God was scheming and thinking and acting just as heavily as Joseph's brothers were thinking and scheming and acting. Right? Notice here in verse 20, 
The same verb is used to describe the, the thought process of these brothers as it is to describe the thought process of God. Joseph's brothers meant to do evil and God meant their evil for good. The Hebrew word here is a, is a very common word. It's chashav. It means to think, account, devise, plan, scheme, regard. It's talking about just a, a mental process that you're really thinking about and, and scheming and planning and thinking about what you're going to do. In the same sense that the, the brothers were doing that with Joseph, so also was God doing that with the evil as well. In other words, both God and Joseph's brothers were involved in their evil actions. Joseph's brothers intended to get rid of their snotty brother, but God intended to use their wicked actions to achieve a bigger purpose, right? And the purpose is right there at the last phrase of verse 20. To preserve many people alive. And particularly even here, to preserve the people of Israel in accordance with His promise to Abraham. Among those who were kept alive were the descendants of Abraham. In fact, I think that's where the story of Joseph fits in here with Abraham. We read last week when we studied last week about the greatness of the promises that God made to Abraham. He promised to give Abraham land. He promised to make Abraham a great nation. He promised to bless Abraham abundantly. And, and, and some natural questions might easily come out of such huge promises, right? Like, how do we know that God can fulfill these promises? Is He really capable of doing so? How can God guarantee that His promises will extend to His people in such a way? Will God's promises continue to stand? And to these questions, I think the story of Joseph stands ready to prove that God is powerful enough to bring His promises to completion. And He uses Joseph as this example of, of these circumstances which are just so wild and crazy, but God is bringing it all together to preserve His people from famine, to protect the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through Joseph and protecting this line so as to be able to fulfill His promise. And if you see what God did with the story of Joseph, you can be rest assured that everything else throughout the rest of the Bible is merely a, uh, an attestation of all the, the workings of God in caring about His promises to Abraham, ultimately fulfilling them in Christ We'll see that at the end of my message. But I'm entitling my message this morning, The Sovereignty of God, because that's what the story of Joseph tells us. It tells us of a God who's in control of all of life's circumstances. He's sovereign over the actions and choices of men. Not only the good choices and the good actions that men make, but God is also sovereign over the sinful actions of men. That's what verse 20 says. It matters not whether men are sinful or righteous. God orchestrates the history of the world to accomplish His purposes. That's what Joseph tells us. The story of Joseph instructs us that God is sovereign over other things, like the weather. He causes the rain to come or not. Predicting and saying when the rain is going to come and when the rain is going to stop. He is sovereign over the thoughts of the hearts of men. He's sovereign over dreams. He's sovereign over interpretation of these dreams. And if God can control the actions of men, if God can tr control the weather and patterns on the earth, if God control, can control the, the thoughts and dreams of men, then certainly God is able to orchestrate history in such a manner to guarantee that His promises, particularly the promises of Abraham, will come true. That's the story of Joseph. It's a sovereign God exerting His power and control 
upon the world to accomplish His purposes. And it shows us, however sinful men can be, even against their own brother, and however unjust and cruel circumstances appear to be, and however forgetful men can be to help their friends, and however long it may take, God will bring it together in His time to fulfill His promises to His people. That's Joseph. Let's look at my first point. I want to just launch here from verse 28. You meant it for evil. I want to show you all the evil that was done to Joseph. So let's turn back to Genesis 37 where the story of Joseph begins. We find Jacob, Joseph's father, living in Canaan with his family. In verse 3, Joseph comes quickly to the forefront as Jacob's favorite son. Look at verse 3. Now Israel, that's another name for Jacob, was given to him on two different occasions, Genesis chapter 32 and chapter 35. Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age. Jacob had four wives. I'm not suggesting that today, but that's what Jacob had. One was his favorite. It was Rachel. And Rachel was so precious in his sight that he was willing to work for 14 years so as to secure Rachel's hand in marriage. 14 years working for Rachel's father. And Jacob loved Rachel so much that these 14 years seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. But Rachel was barren. And having ten of his children born, eventually, now Rachel, God opened her womb. And the firstborn son was named Joseph. Yesaf, which means God adds. right, An addition there. And because of Jacob's love for his wife and her barrenness and Joseph's specialness that God added to them, Joseph became this special child. A special object of his love, or as you might say, his favorite son. And Jacob let his favoritism be known to all in that in verse 3 it says he made him a tunic. There's some doubt what this tunic was like. Most translations say it was multicolored tunic. But... Most commentators point out little translation of these words would leave us to believe that the, the tunic was described by its length and not its color. Right? The, the tunic went down to his, um, his wrists and his ankles. It's probably more what this was. As your New American Standard footnote says, it was a full-length robe. Right? Because a working man's robe had short sleeves or maybe no sleeves because you have to work. But a nobleman's robe could be long-sleeved because it wouldn't work. And as he wore this robe, it was a reminder to all of his children, to all of his brothers, that he was exempt from the difficult work they were required to do because he was his favorite son. He's the one that gets special privileges, right? He's the one that can um, kind of supervise the work being done. Now, this robe didn't help Joseph at all in dealing with his brothers. We read in verse 4 that his brothers saw their father loved him more than all of his brothers. And so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Talk about sibling, sibling rivalry. Here it is. Caused by Jacob. Expressing favoritism. And I simply say, parents, you can have devastating effects upon your children if you demonstrate favoritism among your children like this did. There was natural envy and jealousy that existed between all their brothers, seeing that, that Joseph was the, the special one. You know, we kid around our family. You know, I have five siblings and, 
You know, whenever one of us siblings, you know, kind of feel on the outs a little bit with mom and dad, we always say, I'm the black sheep. Just in this, in this realm, it's more in jest. But here it really was very serious because Jacob would have said, Joseph is my favorite. He is the son of my old age, my precious wife, Rachel. Right, but with Joseph, his brother's hostility wasn't completely Jacob's fault. Joseph also did some things to stir the pot as well. In verses 5 through 11, we see that Joseph was a braggart. He bragged. He flaunted, right, the special choice he had. He told them several of his dreams. The first one he had in verse 7 said that they, he and his brothers were out binding sheaves. And when it came time to gather sheaves together, Joseph's bundle was right there in the middle, standing erect. And the other bundles were bowing down to Joseph's bundle. Okay? He said of another dream. He said, verse 9, Behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And at some point, Joseph interpreted these dreams for his brothers and his father to indicate that they represent that everyone is going to be bowing to Joseph someday. Right? Just as the sheaves bowed to Joseph's sheaf, so also will all the brothers bow. Just as the, the sun and moon and stars bowed to him, so also all the brothers and father and mother will bow to him. His brothers didn't like it. Verse 8, Are you actually going to reign over us, they said? Are you actually going to rule over us? His father likewise said in verse 10, Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come and bow ourselves down before you to the ground? Almost like saying, that's not the case. Is that really going to happen? I, I don't think so. In fact, the brothers knew it wouldn't happen, but Jacob's, Joseph's father at least thought about it. Verse 11, his father kept the saying in mind, thinking maybe he is kind of special. Maybe God is showing us that someday he'll be lifted up as more prominent than the others. But there's all these dreams that the brothers came to hate Joseph. Their hatred for him is mentioned in verse 5. They hated him all the more. Verse 8, so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. In verse 11, we find out that his brothers were jealous of him. Time and time again. Right? These dreams simply a foreshadowing of the things to come. They came true and we'll see. These weren't vain dreams. They were God-inspired dreams. God meant for them to come true. And to do so, God meant for His brothers to do evil to accomplish His task. And we see this evil coming about as verse chapter 37 unfolds. His brothers were out shepherding the flock. Verse 12. His father said, Hey, go out and see how they're doing. Verse 14. He went to Shechem first, but finally found them in Dothan. And while he was a far way off, is what verse 18 says. They saw him from a distance. And before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, verse 19, here comes this dreamer. Right? You can see the agitation in their, in their voice, in their mouth. They're calling, oh, here's this dreamer who thinks that he, you know, we're going to bow down to him. Fat chance that that's going to happen. Ha ha. Let's do something to him. Now let's come and kill him, verse 20 says. And throw him into one of the pits, and we will say, a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what becomes of his dreams, mocking him. But Reuben, bless his heart, when he heard the statement, he rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. Verse 21. Verse 22. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood. 
Throw him into this pit that's in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him that he might rescue him out of their hands to destroy him, to restore him to his father. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his special tunic, the varied colored tunic or the full length tunic or whatever it was that was on him. Verse 24, And they took him and threw him into a pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it because it was probably a water cistern. Threw him in it. He couldn't get out with his help. And the brothers callously sat down to eat a meal. Maybe they heard his voice. Hey, help me! Get me out, please! They just ate their meal. So picture the scene, right? Jacob's brother, Joseph's brothers see him coming from a distance. And their hatred for him was so great they wanted to kill him. Only the gracious kindness of Reuben delayed their plans. But rather than killing him, they, they, they captured him and throw him into a, a dried up well and sit down to have a meal. And They're feasting on their food while Joseph is captured as a prisoner in a makeshift prison. And I'm sure at this point they're thinking about discussing it. Okay, we've thrown him down there. Now what are we going to do? Should we bring him back to our father? Our father's going to rebuke us because Joseph will surely tell what we did to him. That would be hard. We'd certainly be punished for our cruelty to Joseph. We, right, we need to do something. Reuben, you don't want to kill him. Maybe there's something else. We don't know how long they were thinking about their dilemma, but it was a while because the solution came when Reuben wasn't around to protect his brother a second time. In verse 25, they lifted up their eyes and behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead on their way to Egypt and Judah then comes up with this great idea. Bing, bing, bing. I got this idea. Here's what we'll do. We'll sell them. I mean, think about this. If we kill them, we sell them, we get a few shekels that we can put in our pocket. That'll be great. That's better. Satisfy Reuben. Don't do something that's too bad for him. We get some money in exchange. And then what we can do is maybe like pretend he was killed. That's what we can do. And that's exactly what they did. They sold him. Right? That very thing, verse 28. Sold him for 20 shekels of silver. You divide that up among the, the ten brothers, it's two shekels of silver each. It's not a lot of money. I got that, but they were pleased. Reuben finally returned to the pit. He was surprised that Joseph wasn't there. But rather, it's almost seemed rude, right? Between 30 and 31. The boy's not here. It's for me. Where am I to go? And so they took Joseph's tunic and they slaughtered a male goat and they dipped the tunic in blood. So I was like, yeah, yeah, Reuben. You just quiet down there. We sold him and we're dipping this tunic now in blood. They then eventually brought this tunic back to their father and told him, hey, we found this tunic. Is this your son's? And this is a sad scene in verse 33. Not only is the evil against Joseph, it's also against his father. I mean, look at how they break his heart. He said, It is my son's tunic. Verse 33. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And Joseph, Jacob then mourns for several days. It's in fact, it says many days there in verse 34. His favorite son was dead and he just lamented, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. Just mourning and crying and weeping. And it basically said, all my days will be sad as I think about my son. And for years, he had to deal with that. He's just you know, heartbroken that his favorite son is now no more. The evil of Joseph's brothers did great, was great. It brought hardship upon Jacob. 
It brought hardship upon their brothers. Right? They are liars now. And for 20 years, they will have to live with their lies and deceit for a long time. It brought hardship upon Joseph. I mean, now he's a slave. The evil just compounded. But that's even only the beginning of Joseph's troubles. Right? Turn over to chapter 39. When the Ishmaelites came to Egypt with their newly purchased slave, they sold him to a man named Potiphar, who was an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard. And Joseph proved himself to be a faithful man. Potiphar noticed the favor of God that was upon him and placed him in charge of the entire house. Look at verse 3. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about that from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food from which he ate. Things are going very well for Joseph. Not merely because he is so good or righteous, though he was faithful, but because he was blessed of the Lord. I mean, again and again, look at how many times here in verses 3 through 6, it says the Lord was blessed him. Verse 3, the Lord was with him. The Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. Right? Verse 5, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house because of Joseph. Verse 5, the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned. Everything. It was the Lord working through Joseph to bless and prosper the house of Potiphar. And everything was going well, perhaps too well, because Potiphar's wife noticed this man. Noticed, verse 6, that he was handsome in appearance and sought to seduce him. He said, lie. She said, lie with me. But Joseph refused the temptation, knowing that to lie with her would be a great evil and sin against God. But day after day after day after day, Potiphar's wife tempted him. Right? That's the idea here. Verse 10. She spoke with Joseph day after day. He did not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. She's saying, come, lie with me. Come, lie with me. Come, lie with me. And certainly she was like the, the woman in Proverbs chapter 7 who seeks to seduce. Oh, my, my, my man is gone and he's not coming home. Right? He's taking his business with him. Come, let's drink our fill of love. And what Joseph do? He did not listen to her. It's a great lesson in temptation. He just refused. He walked a straight course. Then the day came when she had the advantage. He was all alone in the house and she caught him by the garment and said, lie with me. And Joseph, as was always his custom, said, no, no, I can't. And, and left. But she had such a grip on his garment that he had to just let his garment be stripped off. And went out of the house without his outer garment. Well, being, rejo- being rejected and shamed, Potiphar's wife made up a lie about Joseph. She told her husband, verse 17, The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came in to me to make sport of me. And I raised my voice and screamed. And he left his garment beside me and fled outside. As is natural for any husband, Potiphar's anger burned against Joseph and threw him into prison. And here again, Joseph finds himself being unjustly punished. He'd done nothing wrong against Potiphar. Instead, he had served the Lord faithfully. 
And throughout that time, Potiphar's house was greatly blessed and we have no indication of Joseph doing anything wrong to Potiphar at all. No reason for Potiphar to think of him acting inappropriately in any way at all. And now, because of a lie, he finds himself in another pit. This time confined not in the dried cistern, but in where the king's prisoners were confined. And it's only the mercy of God that he wasn't there killed. For those who were thrown into the king's prison were usually the king's prisoners. One who defected against the government or shown hostility to Pharaoh for some reason and he quickly put them to death. as took place with the baker in chapter 40. But God's hand of blessing remained on Joseph. Soon Joseph finds himself in charge of the jail, right? Verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph. And again, you get this thing, the, the Lord was with Joseph. He, he never abandoned Joseph. Even when the trials came and being accused falsely and sold as a slave, the Lord was always with Joseph. Verse 21, and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. Verse 22, the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made him to prosper. Look again, God's blessing upon him. It was God who was with him. It was the Lord who made him to prosper. It was the Lord who extended kindness and showed him favor in light of the eyes of the chief jailer. And I simply say this, dear people, in this, Joseph becomes a great role model for us. Things are going very bad against him. His brothers conspired against him. Potiphar's wife sought to seduce him and then had slandered him. Now he finds himself in the prison of the king. And yet, what was his response? He again continued in his faithfulness, in his obedience, in his hard work. And he did so for years. Faithful to Potiphar. Faithful to resist temptation. Faithful in his service to the chief jailer. And when you do the math, you find out that from the time that Potiphar got him as a slave through the time that he finally got out of prison, it's 13 years that he was about doing this. 13 years. That's a long time. And maybe today finds you in some sort of difficult situation. I simply ask you, how are you responding Are you responding like Joseph and being faithful? Are you being obedient? Are you working hard? Are you trusting? Or is just a couple weeks of distress too much for you? Is a couple months of difficulty too much? Thirteen years is a long time. Joseph just stayed the course. And I ask this, how did Joseph endure during these hard times? How did he continue to be faithful when betrayed by his brothers, sold as a slave, tempted by a Potiphar's wife falsely accused of being unjustly punished? I think it's his understanding of God that pulled him through. I think he understood the sovereignty of God. I think Joseph understood that God was sovereign in all circumstances of his life. Remember when Joseph was tempted? His response to Potiphar's wife demonstrated clearly he knew that he was walking at all times in the presence of God. How can I do this evil and sin against God? Joseph understood God's continual abiding presence. He knew knew that God never left him alone. He knew that God was with him in Egypt, accomplishing His purposes. He knew that God was sovereign and thus standing before a sovereign God. He was encouraged and ready to obey because God is there all the time. 
God is sovereign over all circumstances. And Joseph didn't know what the circumstances are. He didn't know exactly God's plans for him. Oh, he had an inkling. Remember those dreams I talked about? He had an inkling that someday his brothers would fall down and worship him, bow down to him. But in the midst of his affliction, I'm sure he found it hard to believe. Listen, but here I think is the key of Joseph. Here's the key for us. He trusted in God's plan for his life even when he didn't understand what's going on. He's a little bit like Job. Remember Job, when Job was afflicted, Job had no clue of the satanic conversations and the difficulties he was bringing through just as a test to show loyal obedience to God. And Job never knew that throughout the rest of his days. Joseph eventually did, but at this moment, when he was a, a prisoner or a slave, he didn't understand what was going on. He simply trusted He was simply following in the steps of the faith of his father Abraham. He said, Abraham, believe. I need to believe. I need to just trust. I need to go. And he did that. Right? And his works, his obedience, his faithfulness demonstrated his faith. Now, here's the amazing thing, though. Okay, you ready? You say, you might, well, well, that was Joseph. Joseph had this promise that his brothers would bow down to him. (laughs) I don't have that promise today. I mean, I don't have a promise like that, do I? Oh, you do. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 is the corresponding promise that we have corresponding to his dreams. It's about as clear a statement you can find in all the Bible speaking about God's purpose for our lives. It says this, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Joseph may have been told that his brothers would bow down to him someday, but we are told that God causes Right? He's working in the midst of our situations right? to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. And so, if you love God, right? you demonstrate your calling to God. Right? As Peter said, make your calling and election sure right? by, by loving God and walking in obedience. If those things are true of you, then you can be assured that you have the promise that Joseph had. Right? That though your life may be in the valley now, though things aren't going well for you now, trust in God's goodness this morning and trust in His sovereign plan and rest and rely upon God's power to bring it about. He was working in Joseph's life for the good and for those who love God or are called according to His purpose. The promise of Romans 8 is true for us as well. He's working circumstances in your life for good. So trust Him even in the difficulties. And and you know what? I... This is the very thing that will carry you through the difficulties of life. When a trial comes, a trust that God is sovereign over the circumstances and has a purpose in the circumstances and is causing the circumstances for good will be the very thing that will help carry you through the difficulty. To know that He's powerful enough to bring the trial because He brought trials in Joseph's life. And to know that He's powerful enough to end the trial and to lift it. And that He is good working the trial you're going through for the good. That's going to be the thing that sustains you. Not a view of God that says, oh, God's trying to do me good but can't. But the view that says that God is good and is bringing hardship upon my life to accomplish His perfect purpose. That's why James 1-2 says, when you're encountering trials... When and in the midst of the trial, you should consider it all joy because you know the end of it is that God's producing wisdom in you. That's what Joseph did. That's what we can see in him. 
That was the evil that came upon Joseph. He responded so wonderfully well. And now let's turn to my second point. God meant it for good. God meant it for good. Now, you need to know, in terms of my notes and my study this week, I, I have uh, an abundance of notes. The kind of details walk through this whole story of chapter 40 and 41 and 42 and 43. In fact, I have enough notes for two sermons. But we're going to just reduce it down and we're just going to shoot over chapter 40, 41, 42, 43, 44. Let me just tell you what happened. You can read about it. It's easy to read. I just want to summarize it for you ever so briefly of what takes place. Because 45 is where we want to land because that really shows the summary. That really shows how God used it for good. But things started to turn for the good in chapter 40. He was in prison and with the help of God, he interpreted a few dreams for some fellow prisoners. As it turned out, these interpretations, these dreams to the the cupbearer and the baker turned out exactly as he said they would. He pleaded with the the cupbearer to please remember me, you know, them with Pharaoh because I've been accused unjustly. When the dream turned out, the cupbearer, thanks a lot, forgot. For a couple years until Pharaoh had a dream. And Pharaoh had a dream which none of the Egyptian magicians or wise men could interpret. We're up to chapter 41 now. Then Pharaoh's cupbearer said, Oh yeah, I remember. You know, when we were in prison, you were mad at me. We had this Hebrew and he interpreted our dreams for us. Perhaps he could come and interpret your dream for you. And Joseph was cleaned up and put before Pharaoh's present to interpret the, the dream. And um, Joseph interpreted this dream. You can read about it. Talk about seven fat cows and turning into seven lean cows and things of that nature. But basically, the whole interpretation of it, the, the skinny of it is this, is that there would be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. Therefore, chapter 31, verse 41, verse 35, Joseph said this, Let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store them up. Store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. And let the food become as a reserve for the land for seven years of famine which will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land will not perish during the famine. That was the plan. Seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And um, Joseph said, point someone in charge who can, who can take care of amassing all this grain so as to be able to take us through this time of famine. And Pharaoh said, you're the guy. And made him second in command in all of Egypt. In fact, so high was his command in chapter 41. Right? Verse 44 says, Though I am Pharaoh, yet Joseph, without your permission... No one shall raise his hand or foot in all of the land of Egypt. So great was his authority. So great was his power. Here he was. He went from the prison to to become a prince. Here he is ruling over Egypt. Storing up this whole program. And so he does this for seven years. He's working really hard to store up this this grain. And then the famine starts coming in chapter 42. Now we have a, a flash, I mean not a flashback, but we have a, a change in scenery back to the land of Canaan. We flash back here to Jacob and his sons. And um, they're having a famine which came across. If you look in chapter 41, verse 57, the, the famine was so severe, it was severe in all of the earth. Right? It went out to the whole earth which included Canaan. And um, chapter 42, they're sitting around thinking, what are we going to do? 
<laughs> Jacob says, verse 1, Why are you staring at one another? I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Why don't you go to Egypt? But don't take my boy, Benjamin, because he is my precious son. I don't want to lose him like I lost Joseph. So they send him off. And in chapter 42, we find them standing before Joseph himself. It's really an astonishing meeting, if you will. Joseph at this time is probably 38 or 39. Certainly his face has changed in appearance. I know that my face has changed from age 17 to age 38. I am today. You should look at even wedding pictures. My face has changed a lot. You look at my high school pictures. I've changed a lot. You add to that a different culture, maybe different clothes, maybe you know, speaking the Egyptian language. And it's no wonders that Joseph's brothers didn't recognize him. But when they came to him, look at what verse 6 says. His brothers bowed down, came and bowed down to him, their faces to the ground. I used the word worship earlier. It's more of a homage just given to, here's the, the ruler, we're, we're showing our submission to you. Oh, prince or whatever, the man, sovereign over the land of Egypt. Total fulfillment of Joseph's dreams. And I'm sure Joseph... Right, was thinking all of this, the flood of everything coming to mind. But rather revealing himself, he kind of toys with his brothers. Uh, I believe that um, he toyed with them really to find out, to test them whether, really, whether they were really sorrowful with what took place 20 years ago. And through a series of discussion, right, he sent them back to Canaan with the grain they needed, but without Simeon, because they wanted to make sure that they would come back again for Simeon. And eventually they did come back, but this time they had to bring back their youngest son, Benjamin, which was Joseph's stipulation. You come back, you bring your youngest son, your youngest brother. Because he knew that he was his brother and he wanted to see his brother. And after this series of events, right, Benjamin comes back. He's in their presence. He gives them a big feast. Lines them up from oldest to youngest. I mean, do you realize that to, to line up 11 people randomly from oldest to youngest, like the odds of that are like 1 in 20 million or 1 in 40 million and these brothers sitting around saying, what's up? Something else is up. Benjamin gets this heaping five times as much as everybody else does and they start to have kind of a hint of this. And then he, he sends him away but plants a silver cup in uh, Benjamin's bag, bringing Benjamin back and saying, Benjamin, uh, this was found in you. You have to be my slave. Right? He was ready to let the other brothers go just so he could be with his brother for a long time. And then Judah tells this great story, just understanding the grief that this would be to his father. Right? He's lost Joseph already. Now to lose Benjamin, it would rip his heart. And Judah says, so great. He says, you take me instead of him and send him back and I'll be your slave. And I believe Joseph was so touched by, by Judah's speech. Right, Seeing his, his love for Benjamin... And his love for his father, he was willing to sacrifice himself to do that. Joseph couldn't control himself anymore. Chapter 45, verse 1. Here we come. He couldn't control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him. Read, no Egyptian man with him. When Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And being so overcome with emotion, seeing Judah and his love for his father and his willingness to sacrifice of himself, so different than perhaps he knew them 20 years ago, 
He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Right? They were probably on the outside of the doors, maybe protecting it and listening in and just hearing of just him sobbing and stuff. Just so overcome with emotion because he knew what he was about to tell his brothers. And then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers couldn't answer him. They were dismayed at his presence. Twenty years of... And now he's the ruler in Egypt. How can this be? And, and again, he says, you guys don't get it. He says, verse 4, come closer to me. And they came closer. He said, I'm your brother, Joseph, who you sold into slavery in Egypt. And then he comforts them with great forgiveness that, that is just like Steve Saint forgiving this man who killed his father. He said, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you have sold me here. Just let me, let me stop there. I, I think one of the reasons is that, that Joseph understood not only that God sent him, but he also understood that with God's help, he had forgiven the past. In fact, when he was in Egypt, his firstborn son was named Manasseh. Do you know why it was named Manasseh? Chapter 41, verse 51, Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and my father's household. God has made me forget all that stuff. And I no longer hold this, this grudge or this anger, this retaliation against Him. It is done and it is gone. And that's why Joseph could say here in verse 5, don't be grieved or angry. Because you sold me here, verse 5, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph's eyes were open. He understood now why he was here. To preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry, and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not delay. And this is the sto- point of the story of Joseph. It's a sovereign God who decrees all things to accomplish His purpose, even decreeing evil. Right? Now to be sure, God doesn't do evil. He doesn't sin in any way. But don't ever think... That because God is sinless, it doesn't mean that He isn't sovereign over the evil that takes place in the world. He sovereignly uses evil to accomplish His purpose. In fact, notice how many times here, Joseph says, It's God who sent me. God sent me. God sent me. Not you. It's God who sent me. And God made me Lord. The predominance of the sovereignty of God. Verse 5, right? Don't be angry because you sold me because God sent me before you. Now, when you read chapter 37, you sure do get a sense. It looks like it's Joseph's brothers were those who sent him to Egypt. They were the ones who stripped him. They were the ones who threw him into the cistern. They were the ones who came up with the idea of selling him as a slave. And they were the ones who exchanged the boy for 20 shekels of silver. And yet, ultimately, Joseph says, it was God who was doing this. God doing this. 
Verse 7, same thing. Joseph says, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant of the earth. And I think this is where we tie it back to Abraham. To preserve for you a remnant. Right? To preserve the family, the remnant of the, the line of Abraham. Right? The promised ones. God sent me to, pre- to preserve the promised ones. God had promised to Abraham that he would be a great nation. God demonstrated to the extent to which he'd go to preserve his people alive. In verse 7. Right? He'd use evil to accomplish his purposes to make sure that His promises stand true. Verse 8 gets a little bit more precise. He says, It was not you who sent me here, but God who sent me. At least it sure looked like His brothers sent Him to, to uh, Egypt, but Joseph would insist otherwise. It's not you who sent me here, but it's God. And I think what Joseph is here doing is merely placing emphasis where it needs to be. The ultimate cause of all things is God. God's the ultimate cause of all things. In fact, Joseph even saw about how it's not just in the the sending process, but even sovereignly through the the process of, of Potiphar and being in jail and interpreting these dreams that God made him Lord over all of Egypt. Right? Second in command of the mighty nation Egypt, it was God who made him father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler in the land of Egypt. Right? Almost a father to Pharaoh, almost like he's ruling over Pharaoh. And he didn't in actuality, but you know, perhaps even Joseph was counsel to him. Maybe he was older, maybe he was helping him in mighty ways. But Joseph understand it was it was the power of God that Joseph was enabled to interpret all these dreams. Every time he interpreted a dream, he said, I can't, it's God who gives the interpretation. It was through the power of God that Joseph was even placed in a position to interpret the dreams. Had Joseph been a free man out there, I'm not sure he would have had the possibility and the opportunity that he had. It was through the power of God that Joseph was raised to be ruler in Egypt. And it comes again in verse 9. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Five times in five verses, Joseph insists that it was God who was working behind the scenes of history to accomplish His purpose, to preserve a remnant in the earth. God was working through the sinful actions of men to accomplish His purpose. Listen, I'm telling you, this is the thrust of the life of Joseph. And this is the reason why we can be confident that God's promises will be accomplished. There's nothing that will thwart the mighty hand of God. Romans 8.28 is true because nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. You know Romans 8.38 and 39? I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's nothing. Evil intentions, evil plans, satanic spirits, they can't separate you from the love of God if you are in Christ this morning. And here, right at the beginning of the Bible, we see how true this is. Sinful brothers thinking of murder. Sinful women thinking of pleasure. Forgetful friends thinking of themselves. They cannot stop the plans of God. He will be faithful to His promises that He made with Abraham. As we go through our Bibles this year, one of the things I want you to be impressed with is to see the, the handprint of God, the sovereign handprint of God over the whole Bible, that good and evil is all under the sovereign hand of God. And so that when you see in the Bible sinful, evil things take place, know that God has never lost control. He never has. 
But God plans to use it to accomplish His purposes, right? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And you know what? There's no better place for us to end because there's no better place that this is demonstrated than in the cross of Christ. You might be thinking to yourself, no, I don't think that God has His hand as actively upon evil, Steve, as you say. I say in the cross of Christ, it's demonstrated more clearly than anything else. See, there was no greater evil that's ever been done in the world than crucifying the Son of God. Jesus was God incarnate, always spoke the truth, spoke graciously and compassionately, healed many, taught many of the kingdom of God, taught many the direction to eternal life, never sinned, always gave glory to God, never returned malice with hate, never retaliated, prayed for His enemies, was perfect in every way. He came into His own and His own didn't receive Him. That is the height of sin. And they crucified the Lord of glory. They killed God. You name any sin in the Bible, this one's the worst. I mean, it was worse than the lying of Abraham. It was worse than the sin of David with Bathsheba. It was worse than Sennacherib taunting the the armies of the living God. It was worse than the pride and arrogance of Nebuchadnezzar. It was worse than the drunkenness of Lot. It was worse than the harlotry of Israel. It was worse than the stoning of Stephen. It was worse than the child sacrifice of Moloch. It was worse than the rebellion of Adam and Eve who fell from perfection. It was worse than our own unbelief. You name any sin ever committed, and they all pale in magnitude when compared to the crucifixion of the Lord of glory, the Christ who came to save. And yet, this is the greatest evil that mankind has ever done. There's no other event in the history of mankind that God Himself caused with greater clarity than the crucifixion of Christ. It's all over the Bible. Before time began, God determined to redeem a people for Himself through a crucified Messiah. Before time began, He predestined and determined that Messiah was going to die for the sins of His people. As Jesus walked upon the earth, what he, he submitted Himself to the Father's will. Right? Remember in the garden? Not what I will, but what you will. Right? What did God will? God willed that Jesus be crucified. That was God's plan. That was God's causing. That was God's working. It was God's want. It was His will to see Jesus crucified. And the Bible even goes so far as to say that God killed His Son. Listen to Isaiah 53, verse 10. The Lord was pleased to crush Him, putting Him to grief if He would render Himself as a guilt offering. God pleased to kill His Son because He'd render Himself as a guilt offering and all the glory that that would bring to Him. And perhaps nowhere is this seen more clearly than in Acts 4. I want to just quickly turn over there and read this. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. In this verse, we see God predestinating and causing the death of Jesus. God predestinating... The sinful actions of Herod, the sinful actions of Pontius Pilate, the sinful actions of the soldiers and the Gentiles, and the sinful actions of the people of Israel. God's hand was in that, ordaining the evil. Acts 4, verse 27, Truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. You see what that's saying? 
That's saying it was God's cause that predestined Pontius Pilate to come up and Herod to come up and the Gentiles and the people of Israel to all work together to see Jesus crucified. Is that not God causing evil? Meaning evil? It is. That is the truth of Genesis 50. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Oh, to be sure, God is not guilty at all of committing evil as if He was sinning. But God is sovereign over the evil. And I will tell you, dear people, that this is the thing that's going to sustain you in your difficulties. This is good news for us. God's never lost control. He's sovereignly reigning over all things. And the difficulties that you have in your life come because God has brought them. Right? That's what it means. God has brought the difficulties for your life. He has brought them for His own good purpose. And He's brought them for good. And in that we can rejoice. We're going to close our our service here in a little bit by singing, When Troubles Assail Us and Dangers of Fright. Right? We know that that God will provide. And that's, that's the truth I want you to get from, from, Joshua, from um, Joseph. That's what I want you to see from Christ and the cross. I want you to see to us as well today is the Bible is all about the sovereignty of God accomplishing His purposes using good and evil to accomplish His ends because He's sovereign over all things. Let's pray to the sovereign God. Oh Lord, I pray that You would show us more and more of Your glory. Show us not to balk at these truths, but to love them and rejoice in them because in it is life. That you crushed your son and were pleased to do it because you knew the end of what it would carry about. And you were pleased to see to it that Joseph would be estranged from his family for 20 years, apart and gone and in the land of Egypt because you knew the the end. Through that, you would preserve your people, the people of promise, the people of Abraham. Lord, and even we will see next week when the plagues come about, we're going to see how You hardened Pharaoh's heart so that the plagues could be done, so that the people of Israel could forever be able to speak about the greatness and the wonders of Your power had Pharaoh's heart not been hardened, had they just been allowed to be released from Egypt. That wouldn't have allowed You to show Your glory and Your power and Your strength. God, all throughout the Scripture, is this message clear? God, all throughout our lives, this is the message that we love to hear is a sovereign God who's sovereign over all things. And I pray, O Lord, that You would find us bending our knee to You. May the thing molded not say to the molder, why did You make me like this? Who are we to answer back to our potter? Lord, I would pray that You would shut our mouths, shut our questionings, to your sovereignty. Cause us simply to say, your word teaches it. I don't understand it. I believe it and I embrace it because it's really my only hope. My only hope is a God who's in control and a God who's good to bring these difficulties for a good end. And you brought Joseph through difficulties for a great end to preserve his family in the land of Goshen, to protect your promise, to protect your seed. She promised that the seed of Abraham would even come the Messiah. 
And in that, Lord, we rejoice. I pray even in future weeks, continue to show us how the Bible's put together and continue to show us of your redemptive plan throughout all time and to all people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.